so definitely the best part of my job has been sitting with colleagues I've had over the years. And we've got like a massive whiteboard and it's filled from end to end. We're constantly erasing different parts of it, trying to solve something. So kind of that problem solving and teamwork kind of all put together. Welcome to the Job Speakers Podcast. My name is Robert Hendrickson, and every week I explore a new job with a new guest whose experiences and personal career stories could very well change your life. As I've discussed before, I find guests for the podcast in a number of ways. Some of my guests are old acquaintances, former colleagues, maybe even best friends. Sometimes I get referrals. But our guest this week, Dimitri Bianco, uh, came to me in an entirely unique way. I was online and I use a product to host my podcast and they have their own Facebook forum. And I happened to see a post that basically said, calling all podcasters who are looking for guests. And of course, I always am, you know, a new one every week. So I threw my hat into the ring and summarized, you know, what the podcast is and what I do. And one person, Dimitri, reached out and said he'd love to be on the show. So we connected, had a quick chat, and uh, just had a chance to get to know each other a little bit more. And I sort of wish he were local. He's a great guy. And he has a really interesting career story, and it does an interesting job, one that I certainly haven't covered. You will uh, see in the title of this uh, podcast the word quant, Q-U-A-N-T, sort of a abbreviated a term for quantitative finance. Uh, but as you're about to hear it, so much more. And I was a little nervous, right? Because I, I sort of pictured uh, Dimitri being super genius, intelligent, and, and, and me wondering, how am I going to get him to sort of explain these things to me so that all of you uh, can understand? Well, all of that fear was unfounded. Dimitri is super easy to understand, and he's excited, and he's clear about what he does and why. He's a normal guy, and uh, but but with a probably a unique story. So let's jump in, and please hang around until the end to hear about some great new guests and answers to an important question I posed online. Again, enjoy the episode. Hi, Dimitri. Thanks for uh, joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you tell us uh, what you do for a living? Okay, so I work in an industry called quantitative finance. Um, A lot of people assume it's the same as traditional finance, but we actually use scientific methods, so mathematics, statistics, and computer science um, to model financial problems. Um, There are two different sides to this. You have kind of, I guess, like the sexy, exciting side, which is people that are predicting like the stock market, uh, derivative products, things like that. And then you have what I'm going to deem is risk management. And it's not quite what people think it is either. Uh, Risk management is going to be people that build models or validate models uh, for like credit. So for example, you go down, you get a mortgage, an auto loan, a credit card. Uh, They also model internal problems like operational risks. So predicting, you know, if you're going to get sued within the next X amount of years, could be an employee lawsuit. It could be external customer stuff like that. And then we also do what we call PPNR, which is pre-provisional net revenue. Uh, basically, we predict the accounting statements for our company, so for these banks, and we use these for regulatory purposes so that we have enough capital so we don't end up in another 2007, 2008 financial crisis. <laughs> what is your job title? Uh, I am an associate director of model risk management. Okay. So I actually work on the validation side, not the development side. 
When you see the val- say the validation side, can you give us um, an example that sort of represents maybe something you've been doing lately? Yeah. So um, the development side is kind of the first step in a two-step process. So you'll have developers that will build some model. Uh, they will price something. So I'm working on a model now where the model itself prices um, auto loans. So it determines who gets accepted or rejected for the loan. And then it determines the actual interest rate that applies to that customer. And then that's the development side. I'm the validation side. So after it's all built, my team comes back in and looks at the entire process. And we run more analytical and tests to see if it's actually built correctly. And then we go through this process of back and forth, trying to make sure that we are comfortable using that model. And as soon as we sign off on it, then it will eventually go into a production state where it's actually used on real customers. Is it fair to say that these models are only as good as the assumptions that are built into them? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, so this is kind of the thing. Banks have, every model is considered proprietary. So for example, we're all modeling the exact same thing if you think about it, right? I mean, think about like an auto loan, for example, you know, almost everyone has a car, you go out and you get a new loan for it um, and you got to apply. So you think, who do you apply to? So you think the big banks like Bank of America, Chase, uh, maybe like Capital One, for example, And so you go through that process and you have them all price it, but everybody has a different price for you, basically, right? A different interest rate, some different deal. And that comes from the fact that every single bank actually has a different model. And those models even change over time as all those inputs you mentioned actually change. So I don't know, good booming economy. Everyone's making a lot of money. Defaults on loans is really low. So of course you'll get really good rates. And then in a bad economy, you might have, you know, stiffer rates, it's harder to get a loan for individuals and banks are a little more cautious on that end. You mentioned that you and your team do validation. Do you run a team of people who work for you or are you part of a team of people who all do more or less the same thing? Uh, I am a part of a team that more or less does the same thing, but it depends on the bank. So our bank is so focused and specialized. My specific team that I work on daily is only comprised of four people. other banks I've seen have teams of like 100 to 200 people. So it just depends on size, scale, and specialty. But my sub team is kind of really focused on a few different kind of products. So let's talk about something everyone thinks about when they do a job. It, it doesn't matter what job. And that is, you know, how, how does someone determine whether or not I'm good at it or not, that I'm performing or not? When you were describing your work related to, for example, car loans, it seems to me the only way anyone knows if you guys did a good job is if reality you know, matches what you predicted. Can you talk a, bit, a little bit about how you're evaluated and your you and your team's performance is evaluated? Yeah, so there are a few things to look at. There's other pieces actually come into this too. So even once you have a model built, for example, uh, a lot of times models do what we call rank ordering. So one of the metrics we look at is we wanna make sure that the models predicting people that are gonna be highly likely to default will actually be on a low score. So think of like a FICO score, right? You want to get a low score if you're gonna be super risky. And then if you're a really good customer, you wanna see a really high score. One way we actually measure that is based on that rank ordering. So we look for even subpopulations and pockets trying to see if that model actually ranks them correctly. And then there's actually a strategy team that will come in and they implement uh, business decisioning and finance strategy. So all these finance business guys on the other side, and they pick some cutoffs. So they'll say, we have a score, you know, range of 
I don't know, say zero to a thousand and we're comfortable with people that are going to be above 400. And there are actually banks that will specialize in different spectrums. So not all banks like to you know, make loans to all different spectrums. So you have banks that provide to prime or super prime. So really, really safe people. And then you actually have banks that specialize in like subprime, which is like the lower end of the spectrum. And a lot of banks actually will try to get a blend of the two into a portfolio to kind of minimize the risk. You want enough uh, prime people to kind of keep you know, the default rates low, but you also want to try to help as many people on that lower end as possible. And a lot of times the big banks are all competing for prime. So your goal a lot of times is how do you hit the middle range or how do you get that subprime range and hand select you know, the best people out of those lower ranges. When it comes to what a typical day looks like for you, could could you give us, could you give me a sense for what that is? How much of your time do you have your you nose know, buried in in you know modeling software? How much of your time do you actually meet with your teammates to test theories? Can you give us a sense if someone's listening, what a typical day is like in your world? Yeah, so it varies a lot, but we're pretty laid back. So a lot of people think finance, you think like, you know, 80, 90, 100 hours a week. It's like super crazy. Um, we're like the back office nerds. We're all just kind of like hanging out. Uh, for, the, for the most part, most companies I've worked at have been very like casual. So like we try to start, you know, around let's say nine o'clock. People might come in at like 840. People come in 930-ish. It's not really a big deal. It's kind of casual. Uh, my usual schedule before COVID was coming to the office and then grabbing coffee, like first thing in the morning, you set all your stuff down, run and grab your coffee, and then, you know, boot up your laptop and check all your emails for the day. And you already have kind of in the back of your mind, typically like a whole list of stuff you need to be working on just because we stay so busy. Um, but throughout the average day, you're probably looking at one meeting, which could range anywhere from half an hour to three hours. And then you're spending probably a good two to three hours a day, just like coding on a computer. And it's a combination of reading textbooks and coding. So a lot of times I have like a stack of textbooks I'm looking at. And even though you do the same thing kind of every day, someone always throws like a wrench into the problem of how they want it done slightly differently. So for us, it's kind of like a new problem every day and you're kind of using the same tools, but solving them differently. And then the rest of the day is really just spent, I don't know, kind of working between different teams. So a lot of times we're building a project, we're validating something, and I need to figure out an exact skill from the business side, like how exactly is this being used? And so a lot of times we'll actually have time to go meet with other teams that are actually using the models. You mentioned you have stacks of textbooks. Not many people think of doing a job with textbooks. They think they've already read those books so that they can do their jobs. Is it fair to say, and maybe could you comment on how much your job is a continuous learning experience? Okay, so my job has always been a super fast paced learning environment. And it's really weird because looking back, I started with a finance degree in college, so completely unrelated to quant finance, but I took it and I remember taking this stats class and thinking like, I was talking to a buddy of mine, and I was like, this is the dumbest thing ever. Who's gonna sit here and predict probabilities of somebody defaulting on some loan? And I hate it, it's the worst class I ever took. And then going to graduate school, my last semester of my undergrad, I realized I needed like advanced tools. Like I couldn't really do what I wanted without a lot of math and stats. And I missed all that in a business degree. So I went back for the master's, which is actually a bare minimum in our industry. And I read as many textbooks as possible, did all the work. And when I graduated, I felt like really dumb. Like I still don't have enough information. I need more and more. And then I started my first job and they told me 
one of the directors told me, you know, you're going to get some training. It's going to be nice and easy. And then my first day I hit the ground running and there, there's no one around. Somebody stops by and drops off some assignments. They're like, all right, good luck. So I remember thinking like, I don't even know what I'm doing. I haven't, <laughs> I've never done this. So I remember taking all these textbooks with me the next day that I'd saved from graduate school and going through them. And then as an industry now we're moving, we still use a lot of statistical models, but we're also using a ton of data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence. So for us, it's like, we're always trying to keep ahead of the curve. And especially on validation, you have developers that are making all these models and they hire new developers to do like data science. And so now we're expected, you, know, you just have to know that material and just be able to validate it correctly. So for me, it's always, you know, buying new textbooks and reading them, but there are definitely some core textbooks you kind of go back through multiple times. It's kind of your foundation principles. You mentioned artificial intelligence. And as you were speaking, you know, the question that dawned on me is, do you see a day when human beings don't need to be part of this process? No, I do not. So I'm I'm probably the, the guy using it, but I'm also probably the most negative view on it. <laughs> so AI is really about just automation of a lot of different processes and procedures. And one of the hardest parts, I think, for quants in general is that we model people and people are so dynamic and change so frequently, you'll never figure them out. And so if you look at fields of study like physics, for example, or chemistry, um, they're going to use like hard science and they're going to come up with some solution or like a equations, you know, gravity is calculated by this and it applies everywhere. And then you talk to them, there's a whole field of study called stochastic calculus and stochastic processes. And this all actually started with a guy, his name is Brownian and they named Brownian motion after him, which actually models uh, particles in fluid. So you think of like a little piece of dirt floating in fluid, like what's the probability it ends up in the same spot, you know, in 10 minutes or how do you predict where it's going to go? So they have some uncertainty to model, but it's not super complex. And then we try to take those same scientific approaches to the human world of like soft sciences. And you think you got everybody figured out and then something new pops up, new technology, new trends, new crazes. And all of a sudden, all those models that we built a year or two years ago, we start seeing they don't work anymore. And so you're always trying to catch up to like, how do you do something different? And AI, data science, machine learning kind of has this approach where it's like, we try to fit the correlation between two objects as best as possible. But the problem is a lot of the approaches are so rigid, they don't adapt very well. So even when we've, we've seen people trying to apply these to stock markets, for example, stocks are great examples. I mean, GameStop's going on right now and it's all crazy. You never know what's going to happen. I mean, a company all of a sudden decides to have a new product and they're the best thing in the, mar in the world or the market. Or, you know, some big investor comes out and says, this is a terrible idea. And also everyone sells it, even though nothing has changed. And so I think data science is trying to catch that, but it still is basing on these fundamental historic data set. And so we can't actually predict the future. And so trying to create models that are robust, I think relies a lot on the statistics side. And so I think there's always gonna be this need for human intervention of how do you fine tune a model with human logic to kind of meet the needs that we have. What do you like the most about your job? The best part about my job is probably talking about technical topics. So kind of an odd thing, but I guess when I went to school, the textbooks and kind of the history, I don't know, the classes, the lessons they teach you are very kind of monotonous and they're kind of structured. But the best part for me in a job is like having something and everybody thinks it's the standard and then somebody challenges you. And then you kind of end up in like these deep intellectual discussions of like, like you think you memorized it from school, which is great, but you don't fully understand how two or three different pieces all fit together. 
So definitely the best part of my job has been sitting with colleagues I've had over the years. And we've got like a massive whiteboard and it's filled from end to end. And we're constantly erasing different parts of it, trying to solve something. So kind of that problem solving and teamwork kind of all put together. Sort of John Nash. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We have business people that sit on our floor actually. And they always kind of laugh and joke at us because that's how it is to them. They just see all this math on the board and they're like, it's gotta be too complicated. <laughs> so let's, let's flip the script. If there would be maybe one thing you would change about your your current position and what you do, what might what might that be? The thing that I would change probably, both with my current job as well as the industry, is more of a focus on self-learning and kind of learning in general. So a lot of times these companies expect that you get whether a master's or a PhD, and they expect you just to hit the ground running. And a lot of them fall into these status quos where it's like we use the same type of model over and over. And so we just kind of look at new variables and a few new pieces here and there. But I think a lot of people are kind of falling behind and a lot of like the best talents going into tech a lot of times, just because they don't have that excitement and the kind of that flexibility of applying new projects. So I think right now the biggest struggle, like we're talking about data science here is banks are trying to figure out how do you fix this? Do we bring in data scientists and then they just do data science? But then how do you separate problems? Because some problems you can, compare statistical models and data science models. So you have two different employees. And so I think we're kind of coming to that piece where it's like if they focused more time and effort on internal training, uh, I think you'd have a, I don't know, more fulfilling job for a lot of employees. I know enough from what we've discussed that what you and others like you do spans finance, trading, coding, and risk management and all these categories. Is the industry that that I just described one where, where people are moving around a lot? Is there a lot of migration between businesses as we get better tools, as we get smarter, younger people? I, I think of the technology boom and what happened then. You know, As you were talking, is it one where people stick around or is there a lot of movement, would you say? So there's different parts of it. I think when you're on the lower rungs of a career for quantitative finance, there's a lot of shuffling where everybody's trying to get a little bit of an edge. And I think the value that an employee can add in quant finance varies significantly from, I would say, just barely just doing the job. And then you'll have these really like, I don't know, genius rock stars. And it's so hard to define us because there's no ranking system, right? We're not like an athlete. It's not like you go out and you play, you know, basketball and everyone's watching and says, oh, you know, this is the Michael Jordan of the quant world. So a lot of us kind of fall under the radar. And so on the lower levels, like you bounce around a lot, trying to figure out who's going to pay more. And then you learn the hard lesson of you might make a lot more at another firm, but it's probably because the culture is pretty toxic or not as good. And so you're always trying to kind of figure out where's that positioning of the best culture and the best pay. And then banking and quant finance and generally even at hedge funds, for example, is very hierarchical. We have like that pyramid shape where the bottom, there's a lot of opportunities. You can work at a lot of different firms. And then as you start getting more and more experience, you start getting pigeonholed into your specific area. And then also firm-wise, you might have, I don't know, say 50 analysts on the bottom, but at the top, you have one executive director for a team. And so as you move up the kind of that hierarchy, there's less and less and less opportunities and it makes it really challenging to jump from position to position. And then I think networking comes to be like the number one tool here. So for a bank or a trading firm or someone, you know, they're looking for a senior director or a director or something for a specific role. It's always about like, we need this guy or this gal and they need to have very expertise in these following areas. And then typically you look through like your contacts to figure out who can give you a good reference. 
And part of that's quality. So it's like, it's hard to judge somebody on the experience and the skills and the quant work. Everybody can kind of throw out some buzzwords, but trying to nail down the real skills is challenging. And I think that's where the networking piece comes in a lot is more towards that upper end kind of piece, but it's really hard to jump once you get to the top. There's not, I mean, imagine being an executive, there's not many roles. There's only so many banks and so many firms. Are there certifications in this field that matter to your marketability? Uh, that's a great question. So a lot of other pieces of finance have a lot of certifications like um, the CFA or CPA for accountants. Quant finance has a few, but they're not really looked highly upon. And so because the work is so technical and rigorous in nature, uh, the vast majority of the weight for applications is based on your degree type and also what school you went to. And then if you published any research, what journals were you published in? So for example, you might have, I don't know, a master's from a no-name school and somebody else has a master's from like, I don't know, a top five program in a very specific area. Uh, that differentiates you a lot career-wise. Even later down, you could have 10, 15, 20 years experience. And our industry still looks back and says, you know, oh, that, that degree is not quite as technical or as good as this other one. It's interesting because what you just described is sort of a a middle ground between the academia kind of value system and the business. Sometimes when you leave school, it truly is behind you, right? And that doesn't yeah. matter anymore. It's all about how'd you perform at that next job. In your case, it sounds like they both sort of play into that. They do. They're key pieces. And I think quants are kind of floating that middle ground, which is really challenging because a lot of us want to stay in the academic realm. Like it's nice to have your head in a textbook and look at you know, research and fun things. There's no deadlines for you, which is fun. But academia doesn't pay very well and they don't have access to real world data a lot of times. So it drives a lot of us to going into industry where it's like you have this real world hands-on data that's very dirty data. It's like it has missing values, for example. And so it's like, how do you solve those? And things don't behave the way they behave in textbooks and research. But at the same time, there's always some sort of divide where the academics feel like you have to be an academic to be published in the academic realm. And then the industry feels like the academics are too by the book. They're too much by the rules. And so I've seen a few big name quants that have kind of been able to float the two. But even they've mentioned when I've chatted with them that you have to find some sort of academic that's well known in the academic world and then co-publish with them. Because if not, academia will just basically completely reject you from the industry side. How important is it for people running these businesses to understand what you even do? do? Do you find that there's still a gap there in an education process that needs to be gone through? Or are there senior executives nowadays who know enough about you know, quantitative finance to realize its importance and then bring on the best talent? I think the 2007-2008 financial crisis was probably the best thing that's ever happened to finance, which is kind of shocking <laughs> for a lot of people because a lot of the roles, so there was mandates for part of what they call CCAR and DFAS regulations that came out after 2007-2008. They believe they started in 2010. Uh, they mandated specific banks have chief risk officers. And so when we talk about risk management, people think like you're managing like you know ups and downs of prices. But as I mentioned, it's all these quants doing model development, model validation. And it can be used for any decisioning in any area of the bank. And so I think back in 2010, there was not a lot of understanding. I still think we have a long, long ways to go because there's typically not a lot of senior management that fully grasps the impacts of models a lot of times. And so, for example, you'll have two model developers 
build two separate models that look almost identical. And one will vastly outperform the other model, both in performance of how accurate the model is. But you'll also see that really good model might last, say, two or three years, where the other model might only last six months to a year before it needs to be rebuilt. And I don't think senior management a lot of times at banks and trading firms, for example, understand the value and the differences between them. And so I try to you know, quantify this for people when I've educated them in the past. But if you think about it, if you have to develop, say, a model every single year and it takes a team of four people, you're paying four salaries to build a model. But if that person can make that model last you know, two years, for example, all of a sudden you have four people not working for an entire year. So it's like 50% savings right off the bat here. We can do all kinds of cool projects with it. Um, and I think a lot of times senior management doesn't realize the difference between quants and trying to focus down on that. Uh, they're starting to catch up, I think, overall, and they get the general ideas, okay, these are kind of important models. Uh, they do have significant impact. So credit risk is where I spend a lot of my time. They've been using models for a very, very long time. Uh, some other areas on the regulatory side, it's still kind of like a new idea and a new process, like stress testing and different economic scenarios. But I do think there's a big margin of improvement across all of senior management executives at these different banks to really understand the impacts the model has and how it kind of drives the business a lot of times. I can tell that you love what you do. Is there a story that may have occurred over the last year or two that describes something you're particularly proud of? Probably my, my biggest accomplishment is when you work on more complex models and you're able to draw new conclusions from the models, but also tie together all of the business intuition and insight. So a lot of times you'll have industry experts on models that state, you know, A causes B. And it's interesting when you can go back and challenge them and rebuild an entire new model and show that A, their understanding is incorrect. So that relationship no longer exists in the data but also showing that there's other dynamic relationships on why it could have existed in the past, but that it no longer exists and trying to show them how that changes over time. And so my biggest achievement is probably, I mean, it's most painful as well is trying to explain this to a lot of developers because they don't like to admit when they're wrong. There's a very high threshold of, I don't know, quants always feel like they have to be right 100% of the time. And we basically make all of our money off of, you know, very, very technical, minute details. And so for me, the biggest accomplishment is just really being able to extrapolate these out and show businesses exactly how the model can actually benefit you and help you and how it kind of changes your understanding of the markets. Let's get into a time machine and, and see you as a, as a youngster, you know, 11, 12, 13. What did you want to do when you grow up at that time? Um, I wanted to raise professional motocross. So at the age of probably, I think it was like 11 or 12, I had my first off-road motorcycle and absolutely loved it. And I hated school, probably kindergarten through 12th grade. And I even graduated high school, not wanting to go to college at all. Like I thought it was going to just be this waste of time. I didn't need it. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I think that was half the battle. Like, you know, you graduate, everyone's like, okay, you're expected to go to college. And it's like, I mean, I don't want to just go figure it out at college. It seems like a waste of time. I actually worked at a startup company as well when I started at 16. So I figured, hey, the easiest decision here is, you know, let's let's go on and go into corporate finance, maybe. That sounds like an easy job, sounds like, you know, predictable, reliable. Um, There's a short stint where I studied biology and wanted to be a neurosurgeon, or not a neurosurgeon, a plastic surgeon, uh, specializing in breast and face on like the cosmetic side. 
And then I went through and really learned business and it was exciting, but it was always too much fluff. Like there's no correct way to manage a person. There's no hard science on how you run a business. I mean, you can look at businesses big and small, you know, ones that are super successful, ones that fail, or they've been like Sears, for example, it's been successful for a long, long time. And also it just fails overnight because they haven't adapted. So for me, business was too much fluff. And so I kind of segued into that, trying to find better tools. But I think the best advice for me was just trying to find, as a young kid, is just trying to find something different to do or something enjoyable and kind of following that passion, but also weighing the, the consequences. So, I mean, I took geology, for example, and I loved it, but I realized geologists make like you know, 36,000 a year or something, which was, which was nothing. And so for me, I always try to weigh the, the two sides. If I want something that's enjoyable and fun to go to, but at the same time, I at least want to make a decent living. So I'm not living paycheck to paycheck. So for me, I was always kind of weighing that transition. And even through the business classes, you don't technically have to assign a major until I think it's like junior year. And so for me, I'd kind of taken geology and I took public speaking and a bunch of different classes, but kind of narrowing down what I enjoyed doing. And I felt like I enjoyed more like the math side and kind of the technical side. And so that's kind of how I shook out, I guess, into the financial kind of area. Were you always really good at math, even before you thought you might pursue a career in it? No, I actually wasn't, which is kind of the shocking part. Uh, I remember school. I loved math when I took it in like an elementary school, and I took it algebra in a junior high. And then I got a bad teacher, and then I felt like I fell behind. And then I took it in high school, and it was like I'm kind of catching up again. And then I went to take calculus, and I had this very specific professor that was going to teach it. And then I showed up on the first day and they said, oh, by the way, he uh, decided to do a different role at the, the school. So we had this lady that taught and she was just quite terrible on it. And I think for me, catching up mathematically to my where I'm at now is just super, super challenging. And I think the problem with why math is so hard to learn is that it layers on top of each other. So, for example, I can teach you about, I don't know, we'll go back to biology. Or we can teach you about, you know, I don't know, animals or frogs or something. Or we can talk to you about geology, which is rocks. And I can teach you basic facts. But for math, the problem is everything builds on itself. So it's like you think about you learn arithmetic and then you learn, you know, like algebra and then you learn different types of calculus and then you can kind of split out into different areas. But you have this layering process here. And I think a lot of times students, you get a bad teacher, a bad year, a couple of bad years, maybe. And once you miss that gap, it's so hard to stop yourself and say, hey, like I need to go back and get the basics again. Then I think a lot of students just move on and never go into that career path. Uh, for me, it was kind of a, I guess, seeing what other people are doing professionally and realizing like, I need these skills to do it. And then once I started kind of diving deeper and going back and saying, Hey, I need help in algebra. I need help in calculus one, two, and three. Then for me, it kind of clicked a little more of trying to figure out how to apply it to a real world topic instead of, you know, I don't know, getting those textbook examples just make no sense. <laughs> you surprised me with a couple of answers. One, that you like dirt bikes because I was an English major and loved them too. The second thing though was when I was introduced to you and I'll in my podcast explain how we met, my first thought was this guy must be an absolute genius. And my next thought was I wonder how many other people are going to listen in and identify with that. But I like the fact that you demystified it, that you weren't a math genius. It sounds like you had to work pretty hard at it. Yeah. Yeah. There's so think of the quant world for me, at least I, I guess I kind of judge people based on it, but I feel like if you don't have some sort of imposter syndrome to go with it. So for those people that don't fully understand it, it's 
it's where you know something extremely well and you're like an expert, but yet you always feel like you're like the dumbest person in the room. If you don't have that, I think as a characteristic, as a quant, you won't make it very far career-wise. And part of that comes down to thinking that like, I always look at myself and think like, you know, I'm really dumb. I walk in there, I have no idea what's going on in these models. And then I expect everybody to have this really high bar and standard and then they miss it. And then you look around the room and you're like, I guess, I guess maybe I'm a little smarter or maybe these people, I don't know, they're not the sharpest at this firm or this company. And you keep going along trying to find those people, they just don't exist. But I think career-wise, it's an excellent skill because you're always second guessing yourself. So when you build models and things, which are super technical, there's little, little details, you go back through it every time you keep replaying it in your head and trying to find it. And I'm, I guess I'm kind of odd, but I remember I've had many occasions where it's like I wake up at like two in the morning and I'm kind of having like this dream of like the equations in my head and I have the problem and I'm trying to solve it. And all of a sudden I wake up just thinking like that's how it connects. And so I have to make sure I write it down and then go back to bed. But a lot of times like, quants are like that where it's like we're we a lot of times don't seem like the smartest people until we start getting on to like the very, very detailed, exciting parts of the job. If someone's listening and interested in, in what you do and they may be lucky enough to have that first important interview, can you share a few uh, perspectives on what they might want to ask about in that interview to help them you know, make a good choice? Yeah. So the biggest piece I think is asking about culture. So typically on these quant interviews, you interview with usually a handful of people. So it'll be like colleagues you could work with, you know, a manager you'd work for other managers, but asking each one what they do and don't like about working at that specific firm. And even asking just a blanket, you know, question of, you know, what's the culture like here and see what everybody says. Because I think as a student, like when I graduated, I didn't understand what culture meant. Like I thought like culture was like the Google thing, like, oh, this company's got, you know, free drinks and a, a video arcade and we can hang out. But when you start working with individual people and you ask them, you kind of learn who they are as a person, you realize, okay, this person likes, I don't know, culturally they like this firm because it's consistent. The promotions might be slow at the firm, for example. So one of the companies I worked at, very, very slow promotion rate but there was very, very low turnover and people were very happy because that work-life balance was big. So I'd ask them, you know, like, what does work-life balance mean to you? Like you're saying work-life balance, but what does that mean? And as soon as they start defining, you know, like, well, on holidays, we typically leave the day before like a half day. I'm like, okay. They said, you know, and if you have your kids and they're at daycare and you have to pick them up earlier, your kid's sick, people just leave and go pick up their kids. It's not a big deal. You don't need to ask for permission. And I was like blown away expecting, you know, you have, you have the nine to five, I get here at least before nine, I have to say at least till five, maybe later. And so for me, I think asking those questions on culture, you'll learn a lot about the people you're interviewing. So what's important to them. So if people that it seem like you work there and they like the job, probably be a good fit. And then also you can see how the company kind of treats the employees before you start without asking anything too crazy. Like, you know, does this company, you know, what's the turnover rate and how often do you screw employees over kind of questions? So. Yeah, you you may want to save that until you know they want you yeah. <laughs> as much or more than you maybe want them. When you reflect on your the entirety of your career experience from the beginning until now, if you were to package that into a piece of advice for the whole world to hear, what would that be? The piece of advice for my career would be you never get anywhere linearly. 
So a lot of people think careers and jobs and education and everything, the entire process here, they think you start at point A and you go to point B. And they have this very, very specific steps and processes to get there. I think a lot of times you need to stay open to the new opportunities around you. So a lot of times you might look around and think, you know, I have to work at this job or this position. For example, I wanted to be a trader long ago. And I had these amazing opportunities open more on the quant side. And just opening up and taking those new opportunities has put me in a career that I absolutely love. And it's far beyond what I ever expected. And I excel so much better, both on the educational side, the professional side as well, just because it's like you're willing to kind of bounce around and take you know different paths to find perhaps a better career. Let me give you a chance to say a few words. I believe you're a pretty heavy YouTuber. I know you have at least a few videos, but I want to give you an opportunity to maybe uh, tell my listeners you know how to find you because I, I think there's a whole lot more there that you dig into that you know we we don't have time to do today. Okay. Uh, you can search for me on YouTube. That's just my first name, last name, which is Dimitri Bianco. I also run a podcast called Talking Tuesdays with Fancy Quant. Um, my videos range from everything from like general career advice to talking about very technical topics, how to program in R and Python, for example. And we cover a variety of topics. The podcast is a little offbeat and off topic. It's more of like my personal experiences and discussions. So kind of give you that, I don't know, background feel. Uh, the podcast itself, though, can be found on any platform. It's called Talking Tuesdays with Fancy Quant. If you can't find it, just go to YouTube. Uh, I post all the video versions on there as well. Perfect. Great. And I've looked at some. So for people listening to me, uh, Dimitri is a straight talker. And even though he covers some pretty heady uh, topics, uh, they're fun. They're a lot of fun. Dimitri, thanks for reaching out and uh, in, in your time tonight. This was great. Yeah, thanks for having me. I don't know about you, but I learned a ton about a job I didn't know much about until I met Dimitri. So thank you, Dimitri, for coming on to the show. Next week, I get to feature someone my wife and I spent the day with in Sedona, Arizona. He is a tour guide for Pink Jeep Tours. You can look that up and see what they do there. And he so impressed us that we've talked about him many times since. And of course, after starting the podcast, it dawned on me he would make an excellent guest. Well, I threw on my sleuthing hat and managed to track him down. His name is Joaquin Fox, and he will be uh, on next week. I know you're going to like that as well. Before I go, though, I did a shout out to uh, people on the various platforms I use to broadcast and advertise the podcast, a question that is very similar to one that I ask uh, our guests, which is, what's the best career advice you've ever received. I'm going to read a few of those answers and then I'll let you go. Donna Shoulder Coaching on Instagram said, always have a, the next job before you leave your present job. That is good advice. Ken Stokes, a friend uh, from Lakewood Ranch down here in Florida, told us about a boss who said to him, just don't make the same mistake twice. Victoria on Facebook said, money should not be your motivation. Sal on Facebook said, blaze your own path. And Dwayne Deaver said, be what you want to be, but always be happy. So let's end on that positive note. Again, thank you for spending time with me and my guests uh, today. We'll see you next week. Until then, be good, be safe, be well, and goodbye.